Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world. We are back with Social Convos, episode 12. And apologies for the delay, because, uh, you know, as always, technical issues, but we are combating it as we go. Yeah, and, and it's funny that you did good morning, good, e or, uh, good afternoon, good evening, because I did a hive chat today and I did the same thing, because you were also having people from all parts of the world uh, joining in. So yeah, that's pretty cool. We have a guest today who actually told us that we can do different kind of beverages at this show. So I tried doing some apple juice, apple juice, but yeah, it 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 kind of takes me off my game. What about you? What do you have for us today? Something contained in my traditional, you know, lens bottle, but I think he gave me an idea for a future episode though. We, we should do to spice it up, get those beverages in a round. So to get some apple juice? I'm not yeah. sure. I, I took one sip and my eyes turned red and I was like, I'm not doing apple juice today. So before we introduce our guest for today, we have already some people joining in. So Seth, thanks for joining in from the start. And Ruan, Ruan, we were actually talking about you because we are sure that you're going to love tonight's episode. So tonight's episode, we have a special guest and I met this guy in Tilburg. We were both studying at the Tilburg University. And funny thing is when we were studying, both studying in Tilburg, I didn't know a lot of Surinamese people in Tilburg. There were some. My first year, I had a friend who, who was also a, a school friend or a youth friend of mine who also was studying in Tilburg. We usually hung around with the international students on Tuesdays and with the local students on Thursdays. And then one of my closest friends came to study in Tilburg for a year as well. And she was like, don't you know Guiano? And there was this guy who I vaguely knew, looked familiar. I mean, I saw his face before, but we weren't friends. So we didn't know each other. We passed along each other a couple of times. And I know he has a better version of this story than I do. But thanks to Ajina, which is a mutual friend of ours, she actually was like, hey, you, you, you know he's from Suriname, right? And we ended up chatting, connecting. And yeah, I think we're talking over 12 years ago. And uh, now we can, I can officially say he's, he's also one of my close friends and one of the people that I like to hang out with whenever he's in Suriname. I've yet to visit him in Curaçao, but I feel like I should, should get that opportunity as soon as COVID passes along. So without further ado, the one and only Giano van Kanten. Welcome, Giano. Hi, guys. Thank you guys for having me. A great introduction. A long introduction, but I like it. I like it. Yeah, Shanduk always has, you know, a way with when he does the introductions that kind of builds that suspense, that how did they meet <laughs> factor. And it's no different with you. And I guess to dive straight into it, you guys both were in Tilburg and... I know Tilburg as, as that little town or city in. That, that, that's the impression I got and most people talk about it that way. But tell us more about, I guess, your experience in Tilburg. What got you there? And I guess how your interaction or meeting Shanluk was. Okay, so, so when, I, when I actually the plan, my mom's plan for me to go study abroad was, was, was there from the beginning. So... It was basically a given that once you finish Fileo, then that I would go study in the Netherlands. And you, back in the day, you had this site 
where you could enter your 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 school your your curriculum basically or your your courses and they would tell you the options you have pick you know something you want to study so i liked ecoain which is basically the finance version of 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 the economy course and i liked psychology so i wanted to combine economy like something economics with psychology so i entered that and i had i think four or five options one was in groningen rotterdam amsterdam and utrecht and one random one was in tilburg so i this is this is 2006 or something so i downloaded uh, a map which i don't know if google maps existed but i downloaded <laughs> a map of holland or the netherlands back in the day and i got this picture and in this picture Groningen wasn't even on it i mean you had to scroll up and load something else to see Groningen because it was focused in the middle so right there and then Groningen fell off i mean i mean both my mom and my dad studied in Groningen but still i mean i i, I didn't see the connection like three or i was to, to amsterdam so rotterdam was an option amsterdam was an option and it was actually my mom who kind of told me that she she nudged me towards tilburg because she she later told me she was afraid that i would end up in a bad crowd or not focused on my studies because you know those big cities have a lot of Vietnamese people and you kind of hang out and you chill so 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 tilburg she she nudged me towards tilburg and on the other side of it i like the fact that it was you have to you have to find your own way right so if i would would have gone to rotterdam or amsterdam i could hang out with my friends who went abroad also yeah you don't have to make any new friends so tilburg forced me to be social or to get outside of my my comfort zone and to just find my own way be independent pay my own bills and all that stuff so that's how i ended up in tilburg the practice the practice the 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 actual the actual side of it though when you actually get to tilburg you're like okay i have no friends here so you you do feel a, a disconnect in certain times so you do see other people hanging out with each other in amsterdam and rotterdam like surinamese people having a barbecue and you're in tilburg like okay fine i can do this <laughs> so so there was a downside to it but you you were very happy when you saw other surinamese people so ajina i actually i knew her but didn't we didn't talk that much she she had volleyball practice right after my basketball practice and i think that's how we kind of met and passed each other a couple of times so that's how i met her and shaluk it's just, it's just, it's the same like like you said you knew this guy was here to me so i knew this guy was here to me and we passed each other a couple of times and i don't know if it's like a i don't know social awkwardness or a slight macho pride like i'm not going to talk to him you know I'm here to me you know i'm here to me so i'm not going to make the mistake so i actually had a sail day jersey on so there was no doubt i was here to me yes he played volleyball in the in the court next to my basketball court my private practice court and he had a a, a straight up Suriname shirt like Suriname with the star so there was no doubt he was Suriname so it was a combination between like i i think macho pride and and slight awkwardness or something but in the end yeah i'm glad we connected yeah this is, it's so funny to hear to hear those those sides of the story because basically you are on your own i think that and and weird as weird as i am 
people know by now, I'm a little bit weird. I actually made that decision myself. Same decision. I don't want to be in Rotterdam where I know everybody and I walk around on the street and it's like, hey, yeah, how are you doing? Yeah, we met last week. Yeah. Let's do a barbecue. I didn't want that. So I decided to go to Tilburg as well. I think what most people don't know, and especially those who are watching at the time, when I studied there, I think it was before 2006. I don't know if it was the same when, when you went, Giano. But Tilburg, the economic faculty of the Tilburg University was in the top three of the of the Benelux, which yeah. is like high level. It was a high level economic faculty. And it was even the top eight, no, top three of Europe, best in the Benelux, top three of Europe, top eight in the world. So it was very high level. I think both economics and law, I think we had a couple of friends, Surinamese friends who studied law and they were like, we're not staying here for this law course because it's it's killing us right now. Yeah. But, but I do want to ask Giano because also a lot of people don't know, I studied social science. You're actually the business, the person who actually studied business and economics. So I, I always wanted to ask this question. What are the things that when you look back at your university journey, what are the courses or the topics or even the theories that you learn at university mm. that you can still use to this day when it comes to running your business? And are there certain things like you feel like, okay, but that's it's nice that it's in the curriculum for the university, but it that doesn't really matter. Yeah, so I, I studied business studies, which turned into international business administration, and then later on went to marketing. The 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 study this this course itself, the courses were very broad. So I'm gonna say finance. If I look back at it, I mean you need to have some basic knowledge about finance at least. You know how 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 to balance your your you know your gains and your losses stuff like that you need to know. Other than that, I like the the behavioral courses. You had business behavior, consumer behavior, which I really liked, and you can still apply to this day because in the end, whichever business you have, you you kind of deal with human human beings, and they all have like a certain pattern. And other than that, I think ethics. And it's a weird one because you had a, a course called business ethics. And it, it kind of adds to the other point of dealing with people. But if your business ethics are off, it's going to bite you in the long run. So those three come to mind right now. Okay. Can you elaborate a bit more on the ethics part? Because as you said, it's kind of like the, the one out there. So can, can you think of an example or, or a, a situation where you kind of face that thinking of when, when you got back here or in Curacao and thought back to the courses in university, ah, this makes sense now. You know, you know, with marketing, you kind of have the, 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 it's not, it's not a bad name, but I call it, you're, you're manipulating the people. Basically you use psychology to have them buy stuff or want to buy stuff and i've always seen the, the the power of it in the sense that you could use it for good or you could literally use it for for bad stuff so up till now i've been lucky not to have been involved with any lies like blatant lies or any products i i i know would damage people but in terms of ethics more with dealing with other entrepreneurs so this this is something you deal with daily here. Curacao, for example, has a, has a wide network of, of young entrepreneurs and you, you want to work together. 
in the same way you want to build these relationships and and make sure that you you keep them for years to come but the pie is smaller than in other countries so you're gonna compete in certain situations and i've always felt that the competition is great but i could let you know beforehand we can talk as human beings like hey i'm also going for that you know not nothing sneaky nothing behind your back or anything and I, i think i actually had a situation with which I look like that a couple of years ago because we were in the same field. I'm going to a segue right now, but because of Ineffable, I made it to social media, social media Suriname, right? So the conference and in the conference, you, you, you meet clients. So I actually connected with a certain client, but I let Shaluk know somewhere. I don't know if we're in a hotel room somewhere in San Diego, yeah. like, Hey, yeah. Those people approached me. I don't know if you're setting something up, but those people approached me. So he knew upfront, like, hey, I might be going for that, right? So it's not a situation where, hey, I, I, I let Giano come or, or I, I got Giano to come to my conference and suddenly he's, he's moving in on my clients. So that's, that's a great example, I think, of like business ethics you, you can still apply. Well, that's very theoretical to practical. <laughs> it's a very, very simple example. Yeah. I mean, we had that a lot. It's true. And I think... I think it might be even harder in, in Curaçao because the market or the pie is even smaller. It could yeah. be the case. We've had that here as well. I think I have uh, about two or three competitors, which are really big companies as well, that get some similar or even bigger projects that I get yeah. when it comes to marketing. And we have a very open communication. Like as soon as it's clear that a client is going for multiple options, we acknowledge it, we tell each other. And also... It, it, it kind of became a good thing because everybody started more focusing more on their core, which meant like, okay, this is a little bit off my core. I know that guy is a lot, or that company is a lot better, or she does it a lot better. Let's, let's leave that one alone, you know? Yeah. And I think uh, that's for, for more the practical side, but it's good to, to hear that there's also a, a theoretical, ethical side on that, on that as well. Yeah. So I guess following up on that, you've done your business degree, international business administration at Tilburg. And yes, Tilburg, I have friends who studied there too. So I, I've been there. Great. <laughs> Why are you smiling, Diego? Why are you smiling like that? <laughs> no, just, just, just to clear the air. You know, <laughs> no, for, just, just for people to understand how it is. Because in Suriname, I live at, in Leonsberg. And for a lot of people in Suriname, Leonsberg is like, the end of the end of the world you know it's like you have to drive all the way i'm like come on seriously you have to drive one road it's not that long it's 10 minutes max but but tilburg is the same thing and and the funny thing about tilburg is i had a friend friend who was living in rotterdam and for that friend to visit me in tilburg it was it took so much convincing because for him it felt like he had to take five trains to get to Tilburg. And at a certain point, there was a direct connection between Rotterdam and Tilburg. It was 45 minutes direct from one train station to the other. There was no layovers or stops. Or, there was a straight connection. And he was still convinced that it was the end of the world. 
for some reason for people in the Netherlands, especially Surinamese people in the Netherlands, their work is the end of the world. Yeah, yeah I, I've enjoyed those train rides. But coming back to the subject, <laughs> so the, the air is clear on that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you, I guess, narrowed down into marketing. And I, I, I guess I understand that part because you're interested in psychology, economics, and then human behavior. And to clarify, you, you, you're originally from Suriname, right? Oh, I'm a, I'm a weird mix. So my dad's side is from Curaçao. My mom's side is from Suriname. Technically, I was born in the Netherlands. And then when I was four, I went back to Suriname. So I grew up in, in Suriname. Okay, so grew up here. Yeah. And I guess with, I guess, a background in Curaçao as well, was that a conscious decision that you made uh, going to Curaçao instead of Suriname or rather than staying in the Netherlands? Um... Yeah, conscious. It was kind of, to be honest, and not to disrespect anyone in Curaçao, but it was kind of a plan B. Because, okay, so I, I, I studied, when I finished my marketing, my, my, my master's in marketing, I, I looked for a job for a while. And I think this was the, the economic crisis in the Netherlands or something. But it was the end of 2012. And I applied for jobs for like six months, eight months. And... You know, at some point you have to, you no longer get the, the government, the, the financing, I don't know what, what the translation is. So you ha- that stopped and shit got real at some point. Like, you know, I'm paying this, this student apartment still, but I'm paying, you know, I'm living. So I applied for like eight months or something. And those eight months were horrible, to be honest, because you, you, the promise is you go to university, you get your bachelor's, you get your master's and Technically, you should have a good job after that to pay off your student student loan or student debt, right? But if you're applying for jobs, and I mean starter jobs, and you're, you might be getting there maybe to the second interview, and then they, they straight up tell you, honestly, because it's a business, like, hey, someone applied with four or five years experience, we're going to go for that one. It, it, it kind of breaks you down. So it's like you, you it, at some point, it gets to you mentally. It gets to your confidence because you know you have something, you studied something, you have some experience, you know you technically should be able to get a, a good job, a proper job. And after those eight months, I had some trouble with giving up. And this is like, I'm stubborn. If I have a plan A, I feel like my plan A was at least two years of work experience in the Netherlands. So I kept on applying. And after a while, I think it was my mom again who told me like, hey, why don't you... Like, not at first. I think she had to talk to me like three or four months straight. Like, why don't you try Curaçao, for example? And uh, it took a lot out of me to say, okay, let's give this up and let's apply in in Curaçao. So I had this deadline and I think the deadline moved three times because every time I had like an application running and then at the end of August or something, I made a decision, okay, let's go to Curaçao. And I had, uh, I had a few applications running still, but I think uh, it was December of 2013, a week before my plane, my vacation, I booked it like three December and I, I went on the December 10th to Curaçao. And my plan was to just have conversations here with marketing agencies, just you know, get a feel of the market, get a few interviews. I went to Suriname in, in, in between and then came back. And then I think I got an interview on the last day. I met someone on the, 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 the agency I worked for. I met someone the last day, like February 
third or something, and I went back to the Netherlands, had the second interview in via Skype, and then just decided. And the decision to go to Curacao was is is still it's a plan B. It's something that I know, but I don't know it as well as Suriname. Because the reason I didn't want to go back to Suriname at that point, which is personal, but I had like a mission. There are a couple of reasons. One, I had a mission. Like if you come back, you should be there. And in my head, I was here. Like I just, I just graduated. Two, I think my, it, it would feel like the easy way out to me. And of course, this is a personal decision, but to me, it would feel like going back to something you know, and going back to somewhere you're safe. You're always safe. I I have this example. I would never, ever, ever be hungry in Suriname, ever. I have my mom there. I have my aunt there. I would never be like you know. There wouldn't be, yo. You need to do something to get food. No, you're safe. You're in like your safe environment. You know people probably get a good job, but then you're in your you know. In your little bubble, and Curacao is, is kind of the same, but not. It's like a sub, a sub version of this. So, so yeah, that's why that's why I, I went back to went to Curacao and not to Suriname. The other point of Suriname is that I felt like back in the day, I had this idea like I could always settle down in Suriname, right? Like at the time I want kids and stuff like that, I could I could do it in Suriname, but if I go too early. I might end up with like some midlife crisis. Like, why did I not go to Dubai or something? And 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 you know, went back to early to Suriname. So that's that's the decision. That's why I went to Curacao. I guess you're shout really- out to your to your mother. Yeah, that's a, that's for, yeah. Shout out to your mother for, I guess, first getting you to Tilburg, and then yep. guiding yep. you through the yep. process. Yep. 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 Yeah. You ending up in Suriname and Curacao, I mean. But b- before we move on, some quick shout-outs from the comment yeah. sections. Right. Uh, Snap, welcome. Rowan's back again. And Devon also tuned in. And yeah, Ro- Rowan's already enjoying this tonight. So, because she's from Barbados, so we got some Caribbean vibes going Bye. already. <laughs> and to follow up immediately on the, on that part, Saf has a question here. Giano, based on that horrible post-uni experience, what would your advice be to future students graduating? And I guess in marketing in general. Oh, uh, wow. That's a, that's a great question. I'm, I'm going to be honest. My, I mean, I respect people who, who finish their masters. And I mean, it does teach you discipline. But I think if you find a practical way to apply it earlier, I say do it, because at this point, the way the, I think the, the, the whole environment changed, you can always have these courses or go back to online studying to, if you need to add to your knowledge, right? To your, to your, but you can go earlier. You can go into the job market or start your own company a lot earlier. So that's my advice. But again, on the other side, it's not a loss. I mean, the experience itself of studying abroad, you know, the way you grow as a person, the, the fact that you have to fend for yourself, also the discipline, like, like before we started, we joked about like the, the book SPSS, the, the statistic, which was a horrible course for me, but it also teaches you, you know, not to give up. So you have to, you have to pass these exams and you have to put your mind to something. So that experience is, is valuable. 
So if you, I mean, if you have a chance, try to find something in the middle. I, I quickly want to jump into that, guys. So, so there was a post today uh, on Facebook. There was a post by a Sudanese person who is actually doing his masters now, and he was trying to get funding for that masters. And when you extrapolate it to the local currency in Suriname, after he done, he finished his masters, he would have to pay three times the amount in considering how high the, the additional costs are right now when you loan from the bank, you would have to pay three times the amount over the, the next 20 years. And of course, there are ways to get around that, but essentially the discussion, and I think Giano made a good point, if you can start working earlier to get the work experience and have a bachelor, it becomes easier to get a company that wants to pay you to do your master's. It gets easier to once you've done your master's to get back in the in the application in the job market because you've already been there and and also it's really expensive i mean um talking from our experience i'm not you can correct me if i'm wrong Giano. we're talking about at least ten thousand euros in a year that you're going to spend and basically if you if you do a master's abroad outside of suriname and you spend ten thousand euros you have to imagine what kind of salary you have to be making to earn it back. If you're an entrepreneur, what kind of fees you have to ask to get your actual education back, whether it's in five years, it's in 10 years, it's in 20 years. So it's a really conscious decision. I think we are lucky now with the Caribbean countries and a lot of us aren't really aware of it, but there are a lot of grants. There are a lot of grants to study in Cuba, in China. And of course, it's mainly for other students. But because the, the amount of students applying is relatively low, there are quite some options for master studies to get at least uh, half of the, of the study funded. So I think not everything is lost, but we do have to be realistic. And, yeah. and then the final point is your master's, it's not a PhD, it's not really, really specific, but your master's is a, a lot of more specialism than a bachelor. And uh, specialism is something for Western countries, to, to, to my experience. It's, it's something that, and even though it is, uh, Giano just told us an experience where he specialized in something and there still wasn't a job waiting. But, but compared to your bachelor's, your bachelor's is really broad and then the master's is the specialism. So if you don't necessarily uh, specialize in something that you know you're going to instantly have a job, it's going to be a struggle. And... There are a lot of Surinamese people, our generation before us, and this is the last part of the rant because I'm going on. The generation before us, if you were from Suriname and you were going to study in the 90s, you either should study economics, medicine, or law. Those were the three studies that were considered respectable studies. If you would become an economist, if you would become a doctor, if you become a a lawyer, those were kind of the three things. And everything else was like a tier below it. And I think we're lucky that, that we came up in a generation where our parents were like, that's nice, but feel free to expand your horizon. Because they had a good education, they get put into positions because uh, of the value of their education. But we also have a lot of people who do something completely different from what they actually study. Yeah. Yeah. And to to your point there, and 
I do. I saw the post just before we we got on, and yeah, I just skimmed through it because usually I I don't pay these things too much mind on social media, and that's also conscious. But yeah, to Sean Luke's points, there are opportunities for grants, for scholarships, to that made it possible. And yes, to his point, not many people apply, and that makes you. The one that actually does apply to people listening, it's never too late to apply. Even at this stage, I actually did it myself, like last year. That's how I ended it up in New Zealand, actually, <laughs> studying business. You know, you know the point. Like, I think at this point, if I if I would go back, I my advice would be, if you're gonna study this, make sure you really love it, or that you see. A future in it, like you, you're gonna apply it after it. Then only then I think it's worth it at this point. Basically, I, if you're gonna, yeah, yeah. But, but I do think, uh, like you said before, there is value in that experience abroad, even if you don't necessarily end up following the path that you studied through. I don't think that value is lost. You you've grown tremendously. In that sense, getting out of your comfort zone instead of playing it safe, back, coming back here in Suriname. So I think, regardless of what you end up doing, having that abroad experience for me personally, it's experiencing a new culture, experiencing international, I guess, exchanges, making friends, that expanding that network. That's where the true value lies for me, and not necessarily. The study I've done, while I have learned, you know, business basics, I weigh more value on the other aspects of it. Yeah, but this is true. Uh, but I, my comment was more towards, like, I realize, I realize this that I'm, that you you gotta be in the position or you gotta be lucky, whatever you wanna call it, to be able to go and study abroad. So either you get a grant. Either your parents have money, or in my case, you you still have the the Dutch passport where it's the government thing, right? But not everyone is in that position. So if you're in a position where you have to pay for it yourself, then I would say you know you have different you have different. You have to enjoy it. Yeah. You have to enjoy it because because there are so many online courses right now, yeah. and especially with COVID and everything being digital. Yeah. Uh, and that was also, I think, one of the answers on the question. But I want to jump into in, in, into this part, uh, talking about different cultures, different experiences. So if you look at your experience as an entrepreneur in, in Curaçao, yeah. like uh, when you started, you had, of course, when you first moved to Curaçao, you had a kind of a picture of what it would be like living and working in Curaçao. Uh, maybe not as clear as a picture of what it would mean to run a business. But now, looking back, comparing to what your first impressions were to where you are now, what what what's kind of sticks? You know, it, I my picture was was not that clear in the, in the sense that I had the old school picture that you need to work for a company. So it, it it changed along the way, and I got pleasantly surprised by by the 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 entrepreneurial spirit. Like it's it's not always. Um, as clear as you start your own business, but in Curacao there is surprisingly, I wouldn't call it call it side hustles, but a lot of people who do something on the side, 
and and that that spirit is is very much present. And th this was a surprise to me because in the first year, I focused on working for a company, and it was like all ham or something with all business, like no no networking parties. It was strictly go to the office, get back, right? But later on, I got into this whole network, and then you meet people, and then that 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 stuck. The surprising amount of people who were going for their dreams or going for you know making something out of their passion. And I think I got there. I might have. I'm not. I'm not sure if I went late, but I think around my time. I mean, that's all, all I experienced. So. I think around my time, it really, it really grew, and you had networking events every month, like two or three every month. So that that really stuck. So I, I guess it's uh, usually it's the other way around. People want to start their own thing, but you kind of ended up in a place that cultivated that that uh, feeling and a drive in you. And for me, at least, that's kind of not so common to see. So, yeah. Thanks for it's sharing. It's usually that. the other way around. Yeah. yeah. It's usually yeah, so, the other way around. <laughs> yeah. So in my case, in my case, I always knew. I mean, if you know me, you know I I I'd rather be my own boss and and make the decisions and stuff. But to be honest, I wasn't planning on doing it yet. So if you go back to my plan, my plan was to work in the Netherlands for two years, get that experience. Then I came to Curacao. My plan was actually to stay here for a year and then move on to the States. I'm here, I'm here, I've been here now for six years or seven years, so that, that didn't go according to plan. But my plan was to get the experience first and then start my company. But when I got here, after a year, I, I kind of, not, not the word pushed, but I, I flowed into just starting my own company. Okay, so did, did you want to go in on that, what Giano said last first, or...? Can yeah, I, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. So, yeah, no, this is getting quite interesting. So go, going back to plan A, plan B, and okay, let, let me reframe it. You had a drive, but kind of Curacao accelerated it for you, right? Yeah, the situation kind of accelerated it for me. So what I'm curious about, and I usually see this, people want that experience first and then start their own thing. Why is that exactly? Well, what, what's the gap there that people, I guess from your experience and the thought process that you had that you don't want wanted to go straight into the entrepreneurial dive? Where's that need come from that you had to have a quote unquote working for an employer first? Okay, so there, there's two things, right? First of all, I realized that my study at the university, even though we had some, some, some practice cases and some courses that were very practical, you didn't have any, any experience in the field. That's one. Second of all, I think at this point, if you grew up in, in, this, in, in my time, you realize I, I look at I look at the, the amount of studies I could do, right? I had 284 or something. There's a certain pressure on you um, because of the the amount of options you have that if you choose something, you should be great at it. 
you should actually be good at it if you chose to have a, a master's in marketing. So I think that need to be great. Wants you to wait with starting and not make mistakes right away. So if you start without the experience, you feel like you're gonna make mistakes. So you want the experience to make sure you're you're ready and and you have everything perfect and there's slight perfectionism in there and you know have everything ready before you jump. And the second, the third part, I think it's I don't know if it's always the case in all markets, but I realize that Curacao is a small market. There's two things to that. There's an A and a B. A is it's a small market, so you need to network and people know you. When people get familiar with you, you have a better chance to launch your business and actually get clients. B is if you screw up on Curacao right away, like the first three clients, you're going to struggle because, I mean, you know, it's a small market. Everyone knows so someone would have heard from uh, about it. So I think that the three A and B is 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 also uh, part of it. So those are the three points that I got. Uh, Diego, do you think it has to do a little bit with personality? I think two or three weeks ago we talked yeah, about this I, I'm personality type. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My personality type looks at it completely different. I think my biggest struggle when I because I started off as an entrepreneur, founded two two or three companies by the age of twenty five, then went to work back to work for a company because I enjoyed it that much for five years. And mm-hmm. then after that journey, I finally launched my full-time, my first company that I could consider myself a full-time CEO of that company. And the thing that I was struggling with in my early 20s when I was kind of running my own business, I was lonely. I was, I was going to the office and I was sitting by myself and I was mentally not prepared for that. I mean, I, I couldn't. I'm also wondering, Yano, if so what, what happened to me the first time when I started my first businesses is that I would go to the office and then I would feel lonely. I would sit there all by myself and I, I couldn't, I wasn't ready to deal with that mentally. So I was wondering if you had a similar experience and how you dealt with that. Um, yes, you can, be, you can be very much in a bubble. I mean, you had an office, I could stay at home. I could work from home and you could not leave the house for like a week, right? And at that point, you, you, you do realize you're missing something. I think we talked about this before. You, you have to get out there because you need to bounce ideas. You need to get some outside influences, talk to other entrepreneurs. So I had that in the beginning, and that's where I go back to the, the whole environment here, is that they had a lot of networking parties. Networking parties, networking events, so at some point you do meet people and then you do create like your little, your little, you know, your team, quote unquote, or people you can bounce your ideas off to fight that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it loneliness, but you, you, not to be on an island, pun intended. Just to quickly comment, go through the comments. Rowan completely agrees with you, like that perfectionism becomes a real problem. Yeah. And I, I, I can speak of this myself. And... Safira asks, or is the system, I guess, broken inherently on how the the system or the expectations are set up from a young age and going through this trend of educational institutions that you have to go through this. And I see where Saf is coming from. You have to go through this trajectory, mm-hmm. get your education, and then get a job. And 
just to give you some context, my different view on this in particular, you guys both studied abroad after high school, Netherlands. I, I was still here in Suriname, local university, and no prior job experiences. I did my, in, I was rounding off my bachelor's electrical engineering, had to do my internship and applied for one of, at an, a spot at one of the big companies who shall not be named. But yeah, I, I had good recommendations, good relationship with the lecturer, but then you had this bureaucratic process that you had, had to go through and they kind of rejected it. And that flipped the switch for me, like, all right, I'm not going to even attempt to work for any uh, company. And I've been kind of on and off independent ever since. So I haven't, I do not have that like experience in knowing what it's like to be in a formalized corporate setting in that sense. So I guess that's uh, a plus or a minus, depends on how you wanna look at it. So when I approach new opportunities, I don't even think in that sense uh, of how those companies think, because I don't know how it is. It's, it's hard. This, this is a hard question uh, that Safira is asking because, yes, the system is broken, but the solution isn't really, really there yet. I, the reason I wouldn't function in a, I don't function very well in corporate environments. And the reason I don't function very well in corporate environments, I'm not afraid to say it because I know it's a weakness of mine. I don't like politics and I don't like office politics. So I want to get the job done. I want to have the best person working on the job who is the best at doing the tests that need to be done to get the highest possible result. And if that means that somebody else has to do it, I don't mind that. The problem with the corporate structure is that there is kind of a hierarchical system, whereas certain people have certain positions, certain positions have certain job descriptions, and the people in those job descriptions have to do those jobs, which is a very traditional way of thinking. Unfortunately, what we have now is that jobs are getting so complex that sometimes you have something in your job description which you are really not that good at. Now, Several companies have made a switch and saying like, okay, do the things that you're good at, find somebody else that does the things that you're not good at and kind of alternate, discuss with one each other. I help you out with this. You help me out with that. But traditionally speaking, it's really hard to do in a, in a, in a company structure, which is structured around sanity, meaning like how long you work that, that decides what your pay grade and what your position is. And if you cut into companies where it matters who works there longer and they get the, the more important positions or you get into a company which is a, a family a family owned business where not every position is based on the skill set and putting the right people in the right place but the nephew or the niece of the owner has to do that job because they're family it it gets very mingled in it gets very difficult and so in that sense the structure is broken but from the other side, I'm very positive towards the newer way of working where you put people in their strengths. But there are also some downsides to it, which is that in some cases you get into a situation where people are so used to doing what they love to do. And there are certain important aspects of the business where you're lacking and you don't have anybody qualified to do that job. And then that part of the company just slides away from you. So 
I don't think we have the answer to whether or not the system is broken at the moment. I think for, for us, Giano explained from his side how kind of the environment, the environment in Curacao kind of pushed his entrepreneurial ship a little bit further than it would in a normal situation. Diego just straight up said it was personal for me. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. And for me, it's, it's just I realized at a certain point I was never going to be a CEO of a company with over 100 people unless I created that company because I want to be able to create the infrastructure for how people interact within the company. So it's it really depends on what kind of person you are because you also have people who are really good at working in a structured, they want a structured environment. They want the job description to do the work that they need to do and they want to focus on that. Yeah. So there's no one size fits all. Yeah, I feel like it, it's, it's personal. On, on one hand, you have people who need that safety, that, that you know, nine to five system. And I agree with you, Shalik. I, I'm not a person. I can function in a corporate setting probably, but not a strict. I mean, if you put me in a structure where I need to be in the same office every day at a certain hour and I hear the same song on the radio, drive the same road, I'll probably go crazy, you know. It, I, I think it's, it, it kind of kills the, the creativity you have. So if you can find an in-between, like a hybrid in there, I think that's best because the other side of the coin, the entrepreneurship side of the coin, it's, it's not, you know, it's not paradise. I mean, you, you have to fight for your projects. You might not get paid in time like one client decides not to pay in time and you're like no i still need to pay my rent you know all that stuff it's it's not always you know it's not like yo go for your dreams and uh do what you're passionate about and yada yada yada. no because reality is it's also a struggle so can we hold on that for a second and give us that reality check and you shifting doing your own thing, getting pushed to, especially in a marketing space that's usually attached to a bigger company, but you as an independent marketeer offering services to the others, how did you navigate, especially in that small island to get yourself out there? Give us a reality view on that, on what hit you in the face. Okay. So I'm going back to networking because human interaction. The way I got my clients in the beginning was actually, let's say my first client was a, a, a physiotherapist, like a physical therapist, is because I had an injury. I was there and I started talking about what do you do, what do I do, and, and all that stuff. And I, just told, I didn't sell anything. I just told him, hey, you could probably, you know, you have, I looked at his Facebook page, you, you have like 400 likes. You could probably do something with this to attract more clients. Weeks went by. I just went there for the, you know, and at some point he, he started asking me questions. And, and at, at, at that point I told him, I gave him a card. We had like an official lunch and all that stuff. So that's how it, it grew. But in the, in the beginning, it was just people, word of mouth. It's just, hey, I'm doing this. I got my, my, my old school. I, I know some people don't use it anymore, but I got business cards. You know, I was ready. I had them. I was armed with them. I had them in like this little, I don't know what you call it, this card holder. And anywhere I went, I'm like, hey, I actually handed out, okay, this is a point. I handed out a business card or two in a club. 
I'm like, I'm, I, it's just a party, people dancing, and just like, what's your name? What do you do? And you're you're you're, le- you're yelling. I know it's it's ages ago with this COVID <laughs> situation, but you're yelling over loud music. I'm like, bam, this is me. This is my name. This is my number. You know, this is what I do. So so I was armed with these business cards, and I talk just talk to people. Then, and I think that's that's still the key. That's still the key. And I think that's where most of my clients come from. Not my marketing, because if you look at my pages, some of them have been quiet for a while. But that's 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 still how it works. And especially on a small island, it's the people you know or someone. I know someone, and you meet that person at whatever party, basketball, a beach, uh, a networking party, whatever. You 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 meet that person, and then you get introduced, and that's then they have like a safe feeling with you, and they want to give you a try. Your business. Okay then. Yeah, then I, I yeah, that's, that's something. Yeah, before before we ask the the follow up, that's something that you actually do learn at university. Word of mouth is the most powerful marketing there is. I think yeah. that is one of the things that in theory you learn. But go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So I, I have a provocative thought here for you. So you're oh. you're doing marketing for others, right? All right. But going this goes back to last week's episode with Ruben, and he said. At the early stages, don't spend on marketing. So, I guess for you, how do you deal with this? I guess disconnect or yeah, between you are offering marketing services, but you yourself are not applying your marketing. You're not investing or spending on marketing at this stage. So, how do you? I guess communicate that with clients or even new entrepreneurs who get into this drive as well. You know, in the in the beginning, it was it was there's a there's a combination in my case. In the beginning, it was basically there was no money for it. I mean, you just started. There was no money to to do ads or have a photo shoot or anything. You just needed to get money first. Second, I do think you need to realize why and you need to explain this to clients because the practice the practical side of it is if you have five clients for example it's sad to say but you're you're sixth on the list and especially in the beginning if you're doing all this yourself i mean small marketing small company marketing is they don't have the money to to pay for a photographer a videographer you have to have a package where you do everything yourself right and you don't have the budget to right away hire someone else. So you do all of it if you can. I mean, if you can't take photos, then do not do it. So you're working. You're working these clients, and they they have the priority. And that's that's a sad but still understandable part of it that you become the sixth on the list. And then when you're tired and you're like, oh, I didn't post for Edge Up, you're like, you know, you need to sleep. For example, on the other hand. And this is where I, I look into the mirror and I'm, I'm very honest with myself. It's a damn shame. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's something I can explain, but still it's a damn shame in the sense that, uh, and I do think I, I need to analyze myself and I have analyzed myself. And I think it's something to do with perfectionism because I have this thing that if you tell me about your business, and I look at your business and you can ask me what do you want to do? I'm like, yo, 
do this, 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 this. I have a list. I have a list. If you ask me to look at myself, like try to zoom out of the bubble and look at myself, I go into five options, five valuable, like real options. And you're like overthinking and you're like, okay, I need to do this. And you, this is the part where being alone hurts in the sense that hurts your business because you have no one to bounce it off. And even if you bounce it off, you still have to do it. And that's where you come back to the five clients and the six. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a trap. And, and I do realize why it is. I do realize it's difficult. But I'm also, I realize I can't, you know, you can't just keep going on like this. So you need to fix it. But, but in your defense, though, I mean, the fact that you're not doing it is also partly because you don't have the resources, mainly you don't have the time because you're working on your actual clients. So in that regard, if you're not working on it, it's because you're actually making enough money from what you're doing. So so, so to, to, to give people a little bit who are watching like, oh my God, what, what is going to happen to me if I get into a situation like that? I think my, if I'm talking about the clients that Ineffable has, these are often actually companies that are kind of renowned, but their current way of communicating isn't working the way it used to. So they need to switch it up. But if somebody like a starting entrepreneur approaches me about marketing, the first thing I tell them is, have you sold a product a hundred times? If you've sold your product a hundred times, then we can talk. If you're still in the process of selling a product or a service for your first 10 times or first 20 times, let's get back when you sold it a hundred times because then you'll figure out and you know whether you need it. And if you're selling a product a thousand times a month, then like Ruben said, you're in a totally different situation. You actually don't need to spend on it because you're already getting more than you can handle on, 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 on clients. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, Diego. It's a very, very tricky question you're putting us into. So I'm going to counter you with another pretty hard question. Both of you own or have owned drones. Both of you have taken your fair share of aerial photography and video. As a marketeer, what I want to know is buying, owning, and using a drone an investment that you have to make you could make or you shouldn't make i'll go first all right no i think i think if you're a marketeer what do you mean and in, in your company you're a marketing in your own company or you give you, the service you provide you want to do you want to go into video marketing for me for instance i'm blown away by casey casey nine one of my oh, yeah, biggest and, and yes people that i look up to and the if, fact that he can uh, fly a drone, film it while on an electric skateboard. It blows my mind. It's, but I'm I've come to the understanding for myself that I don't have to do that. But I do want to know whether or not I should buy a proper drone. Yes or no? I say yes. I mean, at this point, it's it's going to become the standard. You're gonna look at if you look at commercials right now, any commercials on 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 Facebook, for example, they have two or three drone shots in there. Even if there doesn't need to be a drone shot, these people have a drone shot in there. You know, so it's it does it does open up a new world and capabilities. And at some point, I think the other the other type of commercials and the other 
videos kind of got stale in the sense that everyone, you know, has the same thing. And that drone videos give you, give you like a whole other option. But, but I do say this. It kind of depends on the clients you want to want to get. It depends on the environment you're in. Because, I mean, I'm lucky and I don't want to wake up anyone from the government. But I'm lucky that the, the regulations aren't that strict yet. So I'm allowed to fly not 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 close to the airport of course and, and there's a lot of nature parks and stuff but i'm allowed to fly but if you're in a city and this is where your company is based rotterdam for example i went there and visited you can't you can't fly anywhere but outside of the city so then no you know then then it's not worth it so that practicals can you use it is it is it is it practical that's that's basically the key okay so okay. here's my take on that have good need i say no i have had a drone and this is partially from okay not a marketing perspective but this is kind of more personal but even then i would say no unless as to emphasize on yano said unless you get recurring request for that type of content or that kind of marketing or you see that potential for those clients but the reason why i say no is i've owned a drone i think 2017 i've been to curacao with a drone i had to register it at the air something to fly my drone there almost lost it over a cruise ship but that's a you shouldn't fly you're one of those people you shouldn't fly over the cruise ship you, but yeah, panic. I'm telling you, these people panic. They t- talk about bombs and grenades. And t- you shouldn't fly over a cruise So, <laughs> c- c- coming back to that, the reason why I bought a drone in 2016-17 was it started to get affordable from a con- consumer perspective. I made the tr- the weighted it like quality to price ratio. It was just right back then, bang for buck. And it was the, the first drone I owned was the DJI Mavic Pro, yes. probably the one that Giano has in his hands. But what what got me to buy it was actually because I won the Safana Rally in 2016, was it? Was it 2015? Oh, yeah. We didn't have someone with a drone on our team. And we were like hitting a deadline and we needed those photos from air. And I was talking to my partner back then. We were just driving back from the Safana and we needed to take pictures. I told him, I'm going to buy a drone just to get this done. I, I had uh, some money saved up and, you know, tech stuff. I, I enjoy these kinds of things. So I bought it. And, but strategically, I knew if people saw that, I knew that there was going to be a short turnaround. I knew that there was going to be a follow-up project to get it, the funding back. Because I, I I put it on the budget for the for the rally, partially, and after that project completed, I actually got a job offer to switch buildings and some locations, and I just put in an offer that covered one and a half times the price of the drone, and they accepted. So my drone for costs were covered in that sense. I later realized that you know I didn't fly my drone that often anymore because. There wasn't really a need. I wasn't that active in the space. And 
that's with any type of gear generally i've noticed that's why i've like minimized i had like a no- whole nikon camera kit with five lenses i've i've uh, dumped it down to one body and one lens basically to what i use like the 20 what, what can i get 80 percent of the shots or the products i need with that minimum equipment if i need a drone shot i have the experience because i played with it before so I, I know what I'm dealing with, but I have, I know enough people now in the space that have drones, we could just hire or, you know, make an arrangement with, or you just pay them to get that shot specifically that you need. And in that sense, you're, you're not loading yourself with all these things you need. So that's why I say you don't need it unless you're specifically wanting to specialize in that section. Yeah. Okay. But in the, in that case, you, you could probably say that you don't need a camera because you, you could use your phone. So it's, it's, True. it's all, yeah, it's all depending on, I mean, how much are going to use it. In my case though, it on a business side, it did help me because the same way it opened up some, some jobs for you. It did open, it, it, they weren't social media jobs or marketing consulting jobs. They were like, Hey, wow, drone shot. Can you make one for us? Or, they just saw some commercial and then you're like, okay, we're going to shoot a commercial, which is in the package. And you're like, I don't need to hire anyone because I can take all these shots myself. And of course, I mean, you know, this on a personal level, I just, I love to take pictures. So it's, it's yeah, a win, if you win, enjoy win. it, yeah. if you enjoy it thoroughly, definitely get it, but uh, don't let it sit on a shelf for, you know, taking dust. Then if that's going to happen and I say, don't do it. Yeah, true. Okay, I think both cases were, you made uh, a great case for, for both sides of the stories. Giano, I think you also had a, a drone picture of yours on a billboard in Curacao. Is that correct? Ah, uh, yes. Oh, you give me the, you give me like a segue to my shameless plug. Yes, yes. I'll take yeah, it. Sure. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so if you go to my Instagram, you'll see I love to take aerial pictures. My Instagram is the same as Kefe Canton, of GFA Canton. So there was a contest done by the distributor of black label johnny walker and they they have the same they, i saw one in Suriname too they have the same localized marketing campaign where they have the keep walking but they have something of that country behind it so there was a contest of giving of, of applying and and getting your shot in there and they would put it on special bottles so i i won that and and they used it first for a special bottle of black label which i still have and billboards all over Curacao for a while, a couple of years. I'm curious though, if you can disclose, of course, yeah. did they like license the photo from you or was it that you won oh. the competition and then they just use it because you entered? No, 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 no. This is, this is where I'm, I'm a little picky. So they <laughs> gave me a contract to sign and the, the contract actually said ownership. So I'm like, nah, son, this, this is not happening. Ownership means I can post it. So you can license it. They license it for, for, for use or fair use or whatever. So they could use it whatever they wanted it, but they didn't have the ownership because I can still use it. I can still post it. That's a great, great tip for starting photographers as well. Yeah. And it might be hard because you, you get put into a situation where you win a competition and you're like, wow, I won a competition. And you just sign off and you just yeah. sign away your, your, your photo. Okay, Giano, we, we've yeah. spoken a little bit about this. We, aside from the conference in Suriname, 
we've spent two conferences together in San Diego, the social mm -hmm. media marketing world, one of the biggest social media marketing conferences in the world. The first time we, we were there together as participants, the second time we were there as part of the, the staff of the organization. And we talked about the concept behind a Caribbean community and yeah. moving towards creating a community for for the Caribbean or for the Caribbean countries or the cultures. Why why do you think it's it's necessary for us to to build such a community? Well, to be honest, it's 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 there's power in 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 communities first. There's power in community. You can work with each other and you can probably learn from each other, open up uh, a lot of business opportunities for yourself. And I do feel like if you look at it globally, the Caribbean community has so much to offer, that's one. But we have like a certain, I want to say, experience, like a different, the culture is different. We have a very mixed culture most of, most of the time. We have influences, we have the connections to the Western world and or let's say the US, US, but also to South America. We have the connections to Europe most of the time. So we have a lot of opportunities to be that link between existing markets. And I feel like, I feel like it's, it's hard in, in, a, in a sense because all of these communities have their own struggles. I mean, you have to have a certain mindset to get out of the, the pious small, which is Curacao, for example, and see that the whole Caribbean is the pie or the whole world is the pie. And that's a mindset switch you need to have. And if you could do that together with other people, then you have more chance of success. Simple as that. I guess to, to quickly follow up on that, you mentioned that the pie being the Caribbean as a whole, but this pie is very fragmented with all these little toppings, little islands with similar but yet different cultures. And yeah. I guess from a marketing perspective, what you've experienced in Curacao at least, what do you see or what should be the approach to start working towards being this link interconnecting the US, Europe, South America? Well, there's, there's, I, I think you, you shouldn't jump into it. You should probably first, there's, there's this thing, I, I can't really come up with it now, but there's this thing that you should do, should conquer your environment first, like your neighborhood, then your country, then your, you know, you just expand. So you should probably start there first. But the key, the key point here is that if, if you don't do it, if you don't do it, you'll always, yeah, you, you'll always be small. It's, it's, you'll never reach, you know, a certain height. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult because you're struggling with one being small, first of all, and secondly, having to share the pie. So it takes, and it, it goes back to the, to the broader perspective. Let's, let's, let's move it on to sports which is the, the oh. last part that we were going to discuss oh. because it, it makes it difficult. It, it, to give you an idea, it's like we briefly talked about it yesterday in, in a post that you placed where Curacao is actually ahead of a lot of, a lot of, a lot of other small Caribbean countries in the process of looking out for people from a certain descent that they are allowed to come and play for the national team. 
And Curaçao was one of the first to do that. Actually has one of the most renowned Dutch coaches in, in football, in the world of football at the moment, yeah. in Guus Hiddink. And they won Cuba, which considering winning against Cuba is, is quite an accomplishment for such a small country. And Suriname is learning from that as well. Dean Khori has been put in to the situation where for three years now, he is slowly putting together a team full of Surinamese professional Surinamese players. And for us, it's much more of a competition. It's like, oh no, Curaçao is doing that. Now Suriname is doing that. Oh, Jamaica is going to do that as well. And much more of a competition than finding a way like, okay, but how can we convince that we would brainstorm together like a Curaçao, Jamaica, and a Suriname brainstorm together like, how are we going to convince somebody who is 19 years old, is playing in the first team of the Premier League, to play for their home nation instead of playing for the big leagues. Because we've seen it in France. Right now we're seeing the movement towards all these countries that people from, from the descent from that country are deciding to opt in. But in France, it's the other way around. In France, we have all these players who are from different or former colonies of France, and they've all opted in to play for France and they won the World Cup. So so how would you translate? I know it's a different, it's a difficult way of translating it, but do you think that we should consider finding ways to kind of interact more and not see it as a competitive uh, situation where we're all fighting to be the biggest Caribbean country or the most successful Caribbean country versus deciding like, how can we group together and make it work for all of us? How we can, how can we all, all grow? Okay, so that, that's a long question, but I, I think it's an important question. But going first of all, going back to what Diego said, the, the question about Diego, the key would be the network, right? The key to the connect all the little sprinkles is the network, to go actually visit, talk to other people, see what's similar, see what's different. And realize that you're you're kind of in the same situation a lot of times, and that goes back to sports. You every country at this point knows that there's a lot of talent outside of their country, and it goes back. Don't make me go on this rant. Stop me if I'm going too far. But this goes back to, I would say, nationalism. In a way, the trust that you 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 value what you have what you have over what other people have. And this is a long history. You gotta realize these, these are colonies. And the, the actual, the value you give yourself is a lot lower compared to countries that have been established and have a different history, right? So you kinda need to create this. They're young countries. You need to create this and you need to value what you have. That's one. But the dark side of this situation and the history is that you need to get over this, this whole craps in a barrel mentality, right? You, you touched on it in a second, like a second there that you don't have to see it as a competition, which it actually is, because if you help all the other countries, I mean, if Suriname helps Aruba, it's a, it's a different situation, right? If they all have the same thing in place, then it, it's going to hurt you in, in the short term. Right? And you need to get over that point. You need to see it as if someone 
one of us makes it, we all make it kind of like it's, it's that you need to get to that mentality and it might be your turn the next time. If you see Curi the Caribbean as one, as soon as Curacao makes it, there's a trickle down effect economically, like pure tourism to Aruba, right? There's, there's like, oh, wait a minute. I could go to Curacao, but I could, I could also hop to, to Bonaire. I could hop to Aruba. So there's a trickle down effect. There's a, and especially with tourism, there's the put the Caribbean on the map kind of feeling that would help you in, econ in, in, in the economy. The other part, I feel like sports would help you with nation building. And this is also a long rant, but I feel like if you get to the point where you value what you have and you instill that in your youth and your children right now, you might not see it now, but in 10 years, that person will have a totally different view of what is a great place to play. It might not be the Premier League. It might be somewhere else. It might be like the African player said, go back to Africa and start their league there, right? There's this value you put in there, but you have to instill it. You have to have it. And this is where I, I feel like these, these events, these, the fact that Curacao made the move, the fact that Suriname made the move opens the door because with success, there's more acceptance. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you read the comment, but I left the comment on, under your comment. Like if they don't have success, you'd probably hear a 50% of it say, yeah, you see, we didn't need the diaspora. We didn't need the people from outside, you know, but it's, it's the success that kind of opens up. It's simple. We're human. So we want to see success and it, it, it makes it a lot easier. But after you do it, make sure that you instill those values. Make sure that you say, like, I love the way Suriname and Curacao both have marketed the, the way they're going to the World Cup, right? The, the, at least the qualifying. I mean, yeah. it's, sports connects in that way. And sports could be the bridge, in my opinion, to that nation-building part. That, I want to say, it's like this, this trust in yourself, this, this patriotism that we're missing in the Caribbean as a whole. And this, this, this is back to the history, why we're missing it and we're still young. And I mean, we're, you know, let's not go into that, but it's, it's very much, if you want to dig into that, it's, it's, it's worth it. But the fact is we're missing it. So you need to build it. And that 19 year old, luckily now, has some examples. And in the beginning, there were examples of people playing in another, in another league. In, in, for another country. Like Suriname has a lot of those. At least you have heroes. That's the first step. At least you have those heroes. And then 10 years later, 20 years later, you have your own team. Second step. So that for that 19 year old, it might be a bit too early to say, oh, value this more because you don't have to, you, you, can't, you can't ignore the fact that it's a personal decision and he has to look out for his career. His interest, yeah. I mean, if you if you are you're 19 and you get to the Premier League and England tells you, okay, you can play for us, and you have a better chance to get into that team and you have a better chance to to you know make money or make millions or whatever, then I'm not gonna hate you, right? But you have to create first the environment that you could come back to Curacao or come back to Suriname and you have a chance. And this is something we can't ignore that. In the end, it's a personal decision for the 19-year, if you go back to your example. You can't hate that person if that person decides to play for England, 
or, 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 or the Netherlands, right? Because it's a personal decision. You have it easy on the side to say, yo, no, you know, you got to love your country, come back. But, you know, sports is, sports is a, a kill or be killed situation and you don't know when it's end. If you have one knee injury, one practice, it's over. So, I mean, on the other hand, make your millions. While, I'm, I'm saying this while going back to my other points, create the environment where it's valued, right? Create an environment, one, where it's valued that you play for the, na- the, the, the national team, so you feel it, and, like, create the environment where you can actually be successful in there, which both countries have now, right? They, they value it more. I see that every day. I see the whole marketing campaigns. I see people posting it. I love it. I mean, they, they, you feel that it's more valued compared to like 10 years ago. Definitely. And, yeah. And, and that's an environment you need to create. And if we get children at some point, we can instill that same value. And on the other hand, you have to be, yeah, the fact that they invested in it and they got some good coaches, you know, the success part is actually the key because if you fail, then you set yourself back like five years, you know, so it's, it's, it is a combination of those things. You really went off on that one. And I'm sorry, uh, my bad, my bad. No, no, no. That's good. That's good. It. It it's real great. And I think you've connected it fantastically to that part of connecting the islands together and then being, creating that network to become that bigger link between the yeah, because I, I, didn't, I didn't answer your question uh, fully. So, right? That's why I went back to it. Magnificently yeah. done there. But I, I think that brings us to the end of this social convos. So mm-hmm. as we close off, where can people find you? What can people expect from you in the next period? So this is your moment to do your plug, whatever. Oh, my plug. Go. Okay, so if you want to connect with me, LinkedIn. Is this, is this very business-like? Connect with me on LinkedIn. If you want to see more of my, my photography and my social life, then you can follow me on Instagram. It's all Canton or Canton. And for EdShop, I want to say go and like the pages because actually right now we're in, in a rebranding phase because I this whole Timurima Osuna Bangi thing is just not going to fly for much longer. So if you follow it, you would be kind of like, you know, back to the, the ground, the ground uh, breaking of a new, a new, I wouldn't say era, but that sounds a little bit <laughs> handy. Oh, uh, yeah. So LinkedIn, Instagram, yeah, those two. Awesome. So you guys heard it. Check him out and look forward to that new branding of EdShop because now he does have the funding to spend on it. <laughs> All right. Um, we're, uh, with that, we are closing off Social Convos for tonight. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you, Guiano, for tuning in from Curacao and sharing your thoughts, your knowledge, your experiences. This episode, if will be released on Saturday on the podcasting platforms. Thank you guys for tuning in live and asking the questions. And without further ado, Jean-Luc, roll us out. All right. Thank you for watching. This was Social Convos. See you back next Tuesday at 9 p.m. Bye-bye.